ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. It has been too long, but we are back here on Hard in the Paint, and uh, it's time for another edition of the Dome Patrol with my friend, my brother, uh, the one and only Ross Jackson, host of the Locked on Saints podcast. Ross, man, it's been a while, but we finally get to do this again. Yeah, man. Look, this is one of the things that I absolutely love about uh, us is that like it, it might take a little while every now and then, but we'll always come back together is the thing that I always love. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. I knew it was going to happen. I, I had no doubts and everything. So I'm just grateful we get to dive in and dig in. It's like Thor's hammer, man. You throw that thing. It's going to come back. Might take a second. Might take a second, but it'll be all right. It'll be all right. It's coming back. (laughs) Now, I did go see Thor Love and Thunder uh, Mm. with my daughter. How was Um, it? It was mid, bro. Yeah. I watched the other one, Multiverse of Madness or whatever. It wasn't good. Marvel is not the truth. I have, you know, it, it seems like since Marvel took over Disney, I mean, Dis- Disney took over Marvel and, and Star Wars, they've ruined them both. Yeah. Ruined them both. Well, they've gotten into the like, oh, it doesn't matter. People will come and see it. Right. Kind of like mentality, it feels like. And that's just. That's, it's disrespectful to your audience. Right. And, and, and I think that if people also have brains, even if you are not like a Star Wars nerd and you watch somebody get stabbed with a lightsaber and then they live. <laughs> like you know that that's wrong <laughs> right. you know what I mean? I mean like if I watched a John Wick movie and John Wick pumps three in somebody's face which he does every time he kills somebody John Wick only goes for headshots <laughs> but if he, shot, <laughs> if he shot that wasn't somebody, that wasn't in the script by the way that was just Keanu <laughs> by the way <laughs> but if he shot him three times in the face and they got up and were like I'm shaking that off <laughs> right you you don't you no longer believe you know what I yeah. mean so I think yeah. it's just but it, it was it was I went for Tesla I went for Tesla Thompson that's how yeah I was there. yeah I got to support Tesla got to got to support Tesla Thompson and she wears that Valkyrie outfit man I'm so sorry <laughs> it, might, it might sound a little sexy but she wears that Valkyrie outfit no don't 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 hit me with it this might sound a little sexist but <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, hey women like Tessa too so I don't care like, there you go Tessa was looking good that's all I mean. <laughs> um got a lot of things that we can talk about but let's let's start with training camp because um we're only five days from rookies reporting we're 13 days from official pads being put on and starting workouts um and then we're really only we're you know a month away from the first preseason game at this point. right um this will be your first training camp live and in person with the Saints. Um, how does that change your approach from the years that you've been doing it from afar and getting reports? Um, now you'll be there. How does it change the way you come, you'll come in each day, um, the way you, you look for things? What are your goals as somebody who's now going to be in the trenches on a daily basis covering the Saints? Yeah, look, I, I think that it does two things in particular. First of all, it puts me in a situation where I'm able to give a little bit more firsthand reporting, firsthand knowledge on what's going on, what we're seeing and what the Saints are doing. Right. So I think that it, it takes me from a place where instead of me sort of 
commenting or giving my analysis on someone else's observations or the observations that we've heard about or pool report observations, I'm able to give observations based upon what I'm seeing. And I believe I see the game very well. So it gives me an opportunity to really just be able to lean into here's what I saw while I was at camp. And here's what, what I think that means. Here's why it's important. So just being able to give all of that from firsthand account, I think is something that is uh, unique and something I'm really looking forward to doing. The other part is that I get to share that experience now with people that are curious about what is it like to attend a training camp as a credentialed member of media? What is it like to see, you know, those practices? What do you hear? What do you like? How do you learn things? Like what is, what's the first thing that you do when you get there? Like I can kind of talk a little bit more about what the process is as well as somebody that's putting fresh eyes on it, delivering to somebody that's curious about what it would be there, what it would be like to be there for the first time. So being able to deliver that part of it too, I think is something that's going to be really interesting that I'm excited to be able to bring. And it and it's becomes more adaptive too, because on a day-to-day basis, you know, what becomes important to you, will change based on your observations, based on who's out on the field and those things. And it's, it, 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 I'm interested to see what kind of content you're able to generate because there will be things that were not available, um, you know, to you before. If you had to pick the storyline, um, the storyline going into the training camp, what would be the number one focus? Is it Dennis Allen taking over, which seems to be something that has kind of already taken place? Um, uh, or is it a player that you, individual that you're looking for? Or is it a unit, perhaps, that, that, that you're really uh, focusing on? I think for me, the, the biggest storyline throughout camp, outside of Michael Thomas's return, whenever that gets rolling, I don't know if that's going to get rolling the first day of camp. That might take a little bit of time with ramp-up periods and things like that. But for me, I think the biggest one is going to be Jameis Winston's return and his ability to create a connection with his new head coach and Dennis Allen. What is the connection between Dennis Allen and, uh, and Jameis Winston going to be for a decade and a half, New Orleans Saints fans never had to question their quarterback to head coach relationship, their quarterback to head coach connection. Drew Brees and Sean Payton were always the pinnacle, the paramount, the paramour of that of that connection, of that conversation. Now, for the first time, neither of those guys are involved. And so now you have to figure out how well is the connection going to develop between Jameis Winston and Dennis Allen, Jameis Winston and Pete Carmichael, Pete Carmichael and Dennis Allen, all of that, that whole triumvirate there in terms of what's going to make the offense happen on a game by game basis. I'm really, really curious to see how that relationship pans out, how it develops. And if there's anything unique that we find from it, do they spend extra time together? Jameis Winston's always going to be the last person off the field. Will Pete Carmichael or Ronald Curry or Dennis Allen be with him? I think like those relationships are going to be ones that I'm going to be watching really closely. And I think are a big, big storyline going into the 2022 season for this team, because Everything on that offense is going to rest on the laurels of that connection between quarterback and coaching staff, quarterback and head coach in particular. It's interesting for me to, to because I think this is a real opportunity for Pete Carmichael to mature mm-hmm. as an offensive coordinator, because certainly the impression was this was Sean Payton's offense. His this was, you know, he called the, the plays. If he didn't call the plays, he, he had created the concepts and the ideas. It was his offense. P. Carmichael was a reluctant warrior, it seemed, at the beginning to take this job. You know, he didn't really want to be the head, the offense coordinator at first, it seemed. Now he stepped into it 
How does he embrace it? How does he make this unique? How does he tailor this offense to the skill set of not only Jameis Winston, but a completely different set of wide receivers than he's ever dealt with before with completely different skill sets and a bigger group of receivers than he's probably ever had to work with as far as their physical size and their versatility. Because now you look at your top four receivers, they're all legitimate NFL sized receivers. You don't have undersized guys. And then you've got guys like Marquez, who's a bigger target. You have a Jawan Johnson, who's that hybrid tight end wide receiver type that you can play around with as well. And then, of course, you have this weapon in Alvin Kamara, who you still have to figure out. And, and I want to get into that a little bit later. But there's so much for him to, to figure out now how he wants to utilize those and how Jameis is best suited to deal with them. Yeah, he certainly won't be underserved uh, with the options that he's going to have to be able to game plan around. And look, I- P. Carmichael has been a part of that offense since its inception, right? 2006 when he was around, 2009 when he stepped into the offensive coordinator position after Doug Marone left. And he's been a part of that along with Drew Brees as well as Sean Payton. There's architecting the offense that we know to be the New Orleans Saints offense, which in particular was a high-flying passing attack that evolved into a very effective run game as well with its sort of renewed focus on the offensive line, for instance, things like that. You know, we've talked, we've spoken before that when the run pass ratio is balanced for the saints, they tend to make the playoffs, right? Like yep. those, those things end up being a part of it. And Pete Carmichael has been a part of that evolution, a part of all those changes and a part of the architecting of every version of the new Orleans States offense that we've seen, I would say like pre 2018 or pre 2017 and in 2017, 18 were a little bit different. And then post 2018 have been different. And so he's been a huge part of all of that. And remember he also in 2000, 12 basically was the guy when it came to the offense throughout all that. And they put together a top flight passing attack. It was not a good team in terms of a a winning team or anything like that. A lot of that had to do with defense and, you know, just not having your head coach out on the field for a different reason than him stepping away and you being able to make a decision uh, through an interview process of who your new new head coach is going to be. But it is a situation to where, you know, or it was a situation to where he architected that offense and did very well with it. Did very well during 2011 as a play caller as well, when Sean Payton was sidelined or up in the booth rather after the ACL injury that he had. So the, the, the weapons in the system around Pete Carmichael should be comfortable for him. The question mark is just going to be, you know, how much is he, how much time has he had to be able to develop this offense specifically for Jameis Winston and specifically for those players that are around? And then how much time does it take for everyone to get on the same page and learn that playbook? I think there's a reason why the Saints invested highly in leadership and intelligence over the course of the past few seasons. And some of that is being able to pick up the playbook quickly. So they should be in a good place with that, but that'll definitely be worth watching throughout those weeks of camp. Yeah. I I find it, you know, what elements does he feel like he can add now? Mm-hmm. Um, with Jameis, because again, we've always talked about the skill set. When you have a bigger quarterback and somebody who can play under center and uh, you know in the shotgun and pistol, all those different things, Jameis gives you that flexibility. He can give you some of that more of that play action uh, passing game that you just didn't have with Drew because of his height and his willingness, his desire to read the defense up to the last second mm-hmm. um, and manipulate it. Uh, I think that you know, I think it's been encouraging to see how much work Jameis got in very quickly coming back from the injury um, and trying to get his timing and his physical uh, skills back. But yeah, I I think 
again, that relationship that Jameis established with this roster is so very important Mm -hmm. from last year that even when he was injured, he was present, um, that guys kind of believe. I think that there is a strong belief in Jameis within the Saints organization, but even more so in the locker room. I think people believe in Jameis um, and what he can bring to the table. And I think if you're also, if you're Pete Carmichael, the, the, the thing that, unfortunately is is works in his favor but not in Jameis's if Jameis fails people come say see Jameis was a bum and we already always knew it, it it's not they're not going to judge the play calling right. because last year when it started and things the couple things went wrong early on and Jameis was figuring himself out it was see that's Jameis though you and I talked about there were some play calling issues and there were some offensive line issues and there were wide receiver issues but people wanted to focus on just Jameis and I think that that part is, is, is going to, he still has to overcome that. So Carmichael kind of gets his time where even if there are errors, he can smooth them out and it won't be on him. It'll go to Dennis. It'll go to Jameis and people will look at the receivers and then they'll get to Pete. So that's kind of advantageous for him in this situation, even though you hate to see that it falls that way. Yeah, no, you do. And, and I think that, you know, to an extent that also benefits Dennis Allen too, right? Dennis Allen, coming into this 2022 season, went after a different quarterback first, right? And then and then brought Jameis back and sort of inherited Jameis in a way because Jameis had been with the team for the past two years. So even Dennis Allen now has a little bit of leeway in terms of, oh, wait, 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 let me get my quarterback if Jameis doesn't work out. But then if Jameis does work out, which I think he will, but if Jameis does perform well, let me say it that way, which I think he will, then all of a sudden, you know, it becomes like, yeah, well, we, you know, we believe in Jameis. And so, and, 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 I'm, you know, they've shown that they do, the organization does. I mean, Dennis Allen came out publicly and ended the tight end, or excuse me, the quarterback experiment with uh, Taysom Hill and everything, which I think is a show of um, dedication and a show of loyalty to or commitment to James Winston as their starting quarterback. And so I, I think that that all ends up working in everybody's favor, uh, it, just in a variety of, of different ways. It's going to be really interesting to see what Pete Carmichael does differently with this offense as the sort of lone architect now in terms of what the offense is going to be and how Jameis's input ends up impacting it as well. Because Jameis has spent the majority of this offseason, mostly because of the injury, working on a short, or not mostly because of the injury, but it was aided actually by his injury recovery to work on his short to intermediate game five to 15 yards downfield because he wasn't allowed to throw the ball any further than that right. for the majority of the early part of the offseason. So it kind of forced him to work on that area of his game, which is a spot that he said he wanted to work on anyway, but the injury sort of made it to where he didn't have a choice. He had to focus there. So do you see a Jameis Winston next year that you know utilizes Alvin Kamara that ends up being a little bit more, you know, dicey and or not dicey, excuse me, but you know, dicing it up a little bit more um, over the middle of the field and in the short and intermediate area, but then that can take the top off of the defenses with guys like Chris Olave and Deontay Hardy and maybe a Dejon Dixon who potentially makes the roster this year. Aesop wins these guys that could be deep threats. Do you start to redevelop a third level attack in Michael Thomas's game like he had in 2016 and 2017 now that you have this quarterback that can push the ball down the field, but then will be able to also do the things that your offense is predicated on, which is that short and intermediate sort of death by paper cuts approach, the West Coast part of the West Coast slash Air Coryell blend that Sean Payton and, and, and Pete Carmichael created. Which is why you went and got Jarvis Landry, because right. he gives you those that ability to separate run routes extremely well and then run it with the ball um, after the catch. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you didn't have that compliment last year. 
And I mean, to be able to move Deontay, um, I, can, I keep forgetting to use this new last name. <laughs> Deontay uh, Hardy. Hardy. Um, Deontay Hardy. Um, to now him be the fifth guy at, at the highest. Because now, I mean, we're talking about, look, if, if, we're, if we're saying it today, the, the, the wide receiver structure would be a fully healthy Michael Thomas is one. Then we're talking Olave on the out, opposite outside, right? Mm-hmm. Landry in the slot. Your fourth becomes Traquan or Callaway. And then your fifth then becomes um, Deontay or the loser of the Traquan and Galloway match. Mm-hmm. So your top five now or top six are all experienced in some way or another. At the very least, you know, Callaway has a relationship with Jameis that they found a rhythm with each other already. Um, I think it's it's not hard to gain a rapport with a guy like Michael Thomas who hates to drop the ball. It's not mm-hmm. hard to gain a rapport with Jarvis Landry who came out of mini camps and all anybody could do was rave about his abilities to catch the ball, to separate and to be a leader. And, and then, who, who also said publicly, I came here to New Orleans because of Jameis, because I wanted to work with Jameis. And then, you know, I think, too, you know, people mocked Jameis, you know, for saying, well, I'm working on these drills with my eyes closed so I can work on my touch and they say, oh, it's Jameis being crazy again. no. Like, to me, that made so much sense because in basketball, we were always we, we would wear, you know, do drills with where you blocked your eyes when you dribbled. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't see what was going on to develop your touch. You took shots where your hands were constricted in certain ways to develop to make sure that you didn't have the ball in your hands and it was on your fingers. So to me, it's not unusual because he's, it's not about the accuracy necessarily for him it's about knowing the feel and making sure that that ball comes off his hands right every time it's muscle memory and creating repetition i think Jameis has just some of the drills look funny just like it looks funny when Dak prescott is doing the Dak dance up and down the field before a game Mm -hmm. but these things serve a purpose and i think that we have to get past the point of this narrative of Jameis winston being an immature quarterback and get to it where He's putting in the work, and we've seen it since he got to New Orleans. Every offseason and when he's at downtime during the regular season, he's there putting in the work to be a better quarterback. He is a very self-aware young player. I would say more so than when you look at a guy like Carson Wentz, who's had multiple opportunities. When you look at guys who have gone from team to team, who have, you know, and, and have not had the same kind of upside that Jameis has shown at his very best. Mm-hmm. Jameis comes in and it feels like his ultimate goals are number one to connect, connect with his teammates and number two, be a better player. And, yep. and it's not a far difference for either one of those. I think that it's, it's we got to leave behind Florida state Jameis. Yeah. Yeah. No, you absolutely do. And I think that like, I mean, first of all, people that are making fun of Jameis Winston's like workout videos probably haven't been to a gym in God knows how long. So like, just chill. And then you, <laughs> you look at the other pieces around around all that, like the idea of Jameis running through his drills with his eyes closed, being made fun of versus Drew Brees being celebrated for mentally going through his progressions after throwing passes or by not throwing passes, right? Going through all of his progressions and reads. What's the difference? Like they're both practices of visualization when you're trying to visualize the game and get comfortable, like you said, with your muscle memory and things like that. Like they're both exercises in the same practice, but 
one of them is being looked at as if, oh, this person's crazy and he's doing all these weird workouts. And by the way, it's not like Jameis just chooses what workouts he's going to do every day. <laughs> right? He has some of the best people in the world helping him as an NFL starting quarterback in terms of what his regiment is that are doing it. It's not like he just wakes up one day and says, mm, I'm going to do this instead, or I'm going to try this or whatever. Like there's, there's practice all this. And I guarantee you, Jameis isn't the only one that's doing those. It's just that Jameis likes to document his process. Jameis has been very open about his injury process and his injury recovery since the moment that he returned to New Orleans and he came back on the contract. He talked about, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I haven't been able to do yet. So that's my next step. And like has been really, really open about it. So we shouldn't be surprised to see these things from Jameis. It's, it's unfortunate that we shouldn't be surprised by the criticism that comes around it too. But, you know, I think that we all know where that comes from. <laughs> and it's, I mean, and back to the matter is he's the second best quarterback at the least, at the least, because we don't know that, that at some point Tom Brady's going to fall off. It has right. to happen. It's, it's sports. But at the, at the, at, he's no worse than the second best quarterback in, in the division. No worse. Right. Oh, for sure. For sure. I think there's been a lot of conversation around him and, and Baker Mayfield since Baker Mayfield came in. And there was even some early conversation around Baker Mayfield about how this it was, should the Saints trade for Baker Mayfield or should they sign and bring back Jameis Winston? There are people that would legitimately argue that Baker Mayfield was the better option at quarterback, which drove me nuts. And I think statistically you can stack them up and then they look like one and they kind of look both look like the same thing. I get that. But you have to go beyond that. Like we're talking about this guy as being the favorite player in every or being the favorite person in any room that he's in the belief that the organization has in him, the belief that the locker room has in him, that the roster has in him. Those things aren't just about his talent. Those are about him as a human being and as a leader. Like you see the relationships that he's built and cultivated with the players around him. Even the relationships that he's built and cultivated within the media has been really unique. And so I think that like when he comes up on podiums and speaks and and things like that, like, I just think that that alone shows you that Jameis Winston is the better quarterback than, than Baker Mayfield because of his ability to lead as a quarterback, to be the grown up in the room, which is something that the Cleveland Browns didn't believe so much in Baker Mayfield that they went and did what they did. So, and you talk about a grown up in the room and making mature decisions like Cleveland Browns, probably the last franchise that should be making those types of assessments. But if that's the temperature around Baker Mayfield at the same time from that particular organization, that's not great. <laughs> you don't have great. Jarvis Landry either. If, if Baker Mayfield is Saints. No, not at all. Not at all. He, in fact, he had the option to go back to Cleveland <laughs> and he didn't like, you know, that for a fact, and he ended up in New Orleans because, and he mentioned because of Jameis Winston. Jameis was a big part of that. Justin Evans, who has a previous relationship with Jameis Winston. Like there are a lot of players that show up because Jameis Winston ends up being a draw. It, I, I think it's going to be a very exciting season for him. Um, and, it, and, and again, it starts with training camp. Um, I don't know how much we'll see. Again, I think his training camp regimen will be very different um, again he will get the lion's share of the reps. Um, of course, now that there is no quarterback controversy, there's no mm-hmm. challenge to him. But at the same time, I don't see him probably playing in the first preseason game. I wouldn't imagine that he's on the field for that. And and I think he probably does one series in the second, you know, and then a couple in the, in the final. Because, again, what's there's no point in risking him. And I think the things that he's developing on the practice field – are going to, you know, the Saints are looking towards the buildup over the course of this season. And they've looked at this schedule. And as we've talked about before on other outlets, you look at the schedule and the Saints are really 
it's an okay schedule. It's not nearly as bad as, as maybe it could have been, mm-hmm. but I think it's as the saints typically do, they want to build towards the end. It's always getting better towards that back half of the schedule yeah. and there are opportunities for them to do that. Uh, and I think Jameis has much like he did at the beginning of last year, before he got hurt, you saw the slow progression from week one to week four of how he was getting more accurate. The turnovers weren't there. And he was doing this with no offensive line, with no wide receivers, with, you know, Alvin Kamara facing eight men in the box at times. And it just, I I think that the progression, I'm not saying he's going to win the MVP, but I think the progression is certainly there for him to be one of the top five quarterbacks in the NFC. Yeah, it would certainly put him in conversation for comeback player of the year, right? Like if you're talking about an end of year award type situation for Jameis, there's there's certainly the possibility there for him. He has the, the he has the personnel around him now. He has the scheme that should be able to support him. And he has, I think the other thing that's really important about the that New Orleans Saints scheme is kind of what you were talking about in terms of building towards the year, creating tendencies early, breaking tendencies late. And that ability to remain unpredictable for 17 games should work in Jameis's favor. And when you have the weapons around him that you have, and you have this defense on the opposite side of him as well, like that's the other part too, like this defense that can get you the ball back and that can put you in situations where you have a lot of short field opportunities. Jameis Winston had the best red zone passer rating in 2022, excuse me, 2021 last year. And the saints were really, really good in the red zone and got a lot of opportunities in the red zone. And a lot of that had to do with where the defense and, and their special teams, the return unit in particular, got them started and helped them out. And then their coverage units when they when they were able to play well. I think you want to see some improvement in the pun coverage unit going into this year, just finding a consistent option opposite JT Gray. But I think that, you know, all of those things end up benefiting what you can do on offense with Jameis at the help. And you've got a lot of players on the uh, in training camp who seem suited to being good special teams players. You know, there, there are some guys that that certainly look like they can make an impact there. Um, overall, as you, as you look at what happened in the offseason, um, and, and I think generally I think you'd have to be satisfied with what the Saints did. They addressed the majority of their needs fairly well, um, I would say, uh, particularly in the losses in the secondary. They compensated there, I think, very solidly, um, obviously filling the receiver position. Offensive line is still – um, and, and defensive interior are still the areas where they are the biggest question marks uh, going into camp. Do you think that the Saints either are still looking maybe, and, and as teams do, will constantly be looking through training camp to see who gets cut and who's available, but internally, um, who are the players that have the biggest opportunity to kind of step up and fill a void where, there's a, where there are holes uh, or question marks? Yeah, on the offensive line, if you can answer that question, the question around the offensive line in-house, that's really helpful for you. And the big two players that are going to have the biggest opportunity right off the bat are going to be Trevor Penning, who the Saints drafted in the first round. It was, it, they were He, he was their second uh, first-round selection. And then uh, James Hurst who stepped in in place of Teron Armstead, who stepped in in place of, you know, Eric McCoy when, or stepped in in place of Cesar Ruiz when Eric McCoy, when Eric McCoy was out and Cesar Ruiz the bump over to center. I mean, he has stepped in in place of Ryan Ramchick. Like he's gotten so many opportunities and the, the, the organization loves 
They, they love him and they have no problem with him starting at left tackle if Trevor Penning's not ready to go. But the best case scenario is that Trevor Penning is ready to go because then you allow James Hurst to compete elsewhere on the offensive line, which either makes sure that you always have the best five players on that unit out on the field at all times by allowing that competition to happen or that competition or maybe and that competition ends up pushing some of those other players that have been pretty comfortable where they've been over the course of the past few seasons to further develop in order to hold on to their spot. So James Hurst challenging on the interior with guys like Andrews Pete and Cesar Ruiz makes sense if he doesn't win that left ta- uh, that left tackle spot. So I think those are the two that are going to have the biggest opportunity going into 2022 on the offensive line. On the defensive line, it, you know, you're just trying to figure out who's going to be that defensive interior. In particular, you're trying to figure out who's going to be that guy next to David Onyemata. Is it going to be Shy Tuttle again? Or maybe some of these, you know, new faces like Kentavia Street or Jaleel Johnson or uh, Jordan Jackson, or, or maybe they end up pushing for some playing time on the interior. I think you just have to figure out who's going to be the most consistent guy there. I imagine Shy Tuttle to start, but they'll, you know, have a bit of an open competition there to see who's going to get the lion's share of those reps. The beautiful thing about the Saints defensive line, though, is that you don't have to be a starter to get to get snaps. You don't have to be a starter, a starter to hit the field. They're just going to figure out, you know, how deep can we go on the defensive interior so that there's a rotation there? How deep can they go on the uh, on the edge so that there's a rotation there? And then all those guys are going to get snaps at some point uh, or another and then backlog some of those guys on the practice squad uh, as well. But uh, the offensive line is definitely going to be a really, really fun one to watch. The defensive interior, I think, I think Jordan Jackson is going to impress more than people maybe expect. <clears throat> Six-round selection out of Air Force. There's just something about his pursuit game he is so he is an athletic agile interior pass rusher and he's pretty good in the run game too but he is athletic and he's agile so his game is going to look very different than the other defensive the interior defenders that are on the roster and that he's going to be competing with and i think it's going to help him maybe jump off the field a little bit i don't know that it's going to help him step into you know a more major role right away but i think you know fan wise i think hype wise his style of play on the interior is so different than these other guys that are more, you know, bullies. They're going to push you back. that are going to bull rush and do all of this, that he's going to look a lot different. And because of that, he'll maybe pick up some hype, but I imagine that, you know, they'll, they'll lean in with experience at that position as best as they can. Do you think the saints continue with the four, two, five, um, uh, you know, lineup predominantly defensively where it's DeMario and Pete Werner um, holding it down at the linebacker spot, um, or, you know, you know, if they're who, who and who has the, the, the advantage at that third linebacker spot? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think that they'll mostly lean in there still with that four two five nickel set. Um, and then, of course, vary it up every now and then by, you know, dumping off, you know, on a, maybe a third and long one of those defensive linemen and getting a, a sixth defender out there possibly or having only one linebacker out there and getting a sixth uh, defensive back out there. Uh, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll vary it up. There are multiple front defense. They'll continue to be that. But for the most part, I think you'll still see four down linemen, two linebackers, and then five players in the secondary. When they do bring out uh, their, their strong side linebacker in any set to where they reduce maybe, you know, to three down linemen and then up to three linebackers or reduce down to four defensive backs and then add another linebacker. Uh, those will be on the rundowns. And I think Caden Ellis, has the advantage there. Caden Ellis during OTAs and mini camps made a lot of splash plays. There's not a lot of playmaking for the Saints at the second level. Mm-hmm. It's not really who they've been. So a guy like Caden Ellis, who, you know, forced that, you think about Malcolm Jenkins pick six last year against the 
uh, New England Patriots that was forced by the pass rush of Caden Ellis. So I, I think that he'll find his way out onto the field. He's also a value in the run game as well. So if you're out, if you're bringing somebody and bringing a third linebacker out there for rundowns, I, I think very likely he makes sense. But DeMarco Jackson, the the Saints rookie out of App State um, in the fifth mm, round yeah. this past season, he's somebody that could potentially challenge for that role or challenge for some of those snaps uh, during the during training camp as well. Kind of like last year you saw uh, Caden Ellis take the lion's share of those, but you saw Zach Bond get some. I think DeMarco Jackson could be the Zach Bond of that situation. We'll see what happens with Zach Bond going in. But for me right now, I think he's behind a couple of guys at this point. Could you also see Cade Nellis, and and we we've talked about this at times, um, with with Cam Jordan going into this season, you know you know the, the focus obviously for Cam the, the big thing is he can be the all time Saints sack leader this year he can mm-hmm. break Ricky Jackson's record, but still also, you know we know Cam goes through peaks and valleys over the last couple seasons physically, um, mm-hmm. where he's you know dominant and then some games he's just kind of there. Um, do you think maybe the Saints do, like, say, maybe put a Cade Nellis at, as a rush end at times, move Cam inside and, and try to create that Corvette package every now and then and give Cam some interior rush opportunities to save him um, at certain points in the game? I don't know that Caden Ellis gets those snaps, but I think I think Peyton Turner does. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you know Peyton Turner and Marcus Davenport and and Cam Jordan having that trio healthy and ready to go would certainly be helpful. And then a guy like Caden Ellis, when you're in that three linebacker set where you're trying to add an additional blitzer, right. I think that that's where Caden Ellis gets maybe his you know his pass rushing opportunities. But the Saints just don't do the speed rusher situation, the smaller pass rusher speed rusher situation off of the edge. They like the guys that are going to push tackles into the quarterback. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they have guys like Cam Jordan and Peyton Turner and Marcus Davenport, Carl Granderson. They brought back, you know, they brought in Taco Charlton to get an idea of maybe, you know, give him an opportunity. Uh, Tono Passanio, who may have been one of the biggest pieces that was missed last season. Like talk about somebody that could also have an impact on the interior, you know, the defensive interior. Tana Passanio could be that guy who could also bounce outside to, uh, to the edge. So there's a lot of opportunity for the guys that they have kind of in that rotation, if they can keep that rotation built up. Um, The next thing, um, who do you think is the player or players who are under the biggest spotlight as far as they need to have um, a, a good camp in order mm-hmm. to solidify their position. They're already under contract. I'm not talking about a rookie or, or a free agent who you could easily cut, but somebody who's on this roster right now who, who really needs – I'm thinking Cesar Ruiz, that mm-hmm. Cesar Ruiz needs to have a very good camp. People keep saying he struggled because he played out of position, um, but he didn't play well at center either mm-hmm. um, when he was given the opportunity. It seems as if the NFL game has been too fast for him in some ways. Um, either mentally and at times physically, that he's just not in the right places. Um, I think this is a a vital, I mean, this is crucial for Cesar Ruiz and his NFL career, quite frankly. Yeah, it is. And I mean, you know, he could lose a starting spot this offseason if Trevor Penning gets that left tackle spot and they let James Hurst compete elsewhere. I mean, Zach Street talked about it. Uh, during the, I think it was the uh, Hall of this New Orleans Saints Hall of Fame uh, golf tournament, he spoke about how yeah, there's an opportunity, there's a chance that you can see Trevor Penning and James Hurst both starting on the offensive line because every guy is going to get an opportunity to compete, and if you lose one battle, you get an opportunity to compete at the other four spots, and so they look, they like I said, they like James Hurst, and they'll 
have an opportunity there to maybe get him a little bit more involved in the offensive line one way or another. And that could be at the detriment of a guy like Cesar Ruiz, who's then asked to bump back and develop in the background. The hope is that Doug Marone, who came back as the offensive line coach, who's a really, really good developer of offensive linemen, and Zach Streep, who, of course, has developed in this system before himself, uh, will be able to help Cesar Ruiz. But maybe it ends up in a situation to where you, you are able to help him, but you don't help him while he's on the field. You help him when he's off the field as a backup. So yeah, it's a big camp for him. And I think that another guy that's going to have a pretty big camp coming up is uh, just to go back to him, kind of just mentioned him is Zach Bond. The, the saints invested, you know, a third round selection in him just a few years ago. Uh, part of that same draft class, right. That, that sort of COVID draft class and the, they haven't really found a role for him. I mean, he's not, he came in, the thing that made him draftable in college was his ability to rush the passer off the edge as a speed rusher, but he's too small to do that in the NFL and in the NFL game. And so they tried to change him over to being an off ball linebacker and all that. And that hasn't panned out. And now he barely sees the field and he's been, you know, a, a special teams help at most. Now there are a lot of teams though, out there and across the NFL that, would be interested in a speed rusher. Like that's that, you know, you think about the Philadelphia Eagles and the way that they play linebacker, right. The way that their linebackers play. Yeah. And so there are teams out there that he would be just a better fit in, yeah. in their system more likely, right. Than than what he is in the way that he's fitting into the new Orleans saints defense. So I think that, you know, this training camp could be a really, really big one for him in terms of either his future with this team or potentially even making himself more attractive in the eyes of another team, which would allow the saints to potentially move him. Um, we mentioned Alvin Kamara earlier, and I wanted to come back to that because mm-hmm. he was voted the fifth best running back in the NFL. And we all know how talented Alvin Kamara is. The question I have is not about this year for him. It's his all-time placing. He's going to break every Saints touchdown record, rushing, mm-hmm. receiving, total. He's going to have them all. But his yards total at the end of his career, his rushing yards total probably won't be right. You know, in that level where – you talk about the all-time greats. He's not going to be 10,000, 12,000 rushing yards for his career. It's not going to be, you know, he's not he's not a guy that probably will play 14 years in the league, like, mm-hmm. you know, and and, and and get those yards like a Frank Gore. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And just right. chew up, churn up yards. It's a very weird place when you start looking at Alvin Kamara because to me, the historical comp is going to end up being somebody like a Gale Sayers. Where, you know, whereas Gail's career was cut short because of injury. But to me, it's very similar. You didn't rely on Gail Sayers to carry the ball 400 times in a season. That wasn't the way it was going to be. But you could, he was a weapon out of the backfield, he was a weapon in the return game, a weapon. Obviously, he scored touchdowns, still holds the NFL single game record for most touchdowns. Mm-hmm. Alvin had his chance. Taysom Hill <laughs> took it from him. <laughs> but we, you know, we won't revisit that. But I think historically, Alvin Kamara in this era, especially when you see, you know, in Tennessee, you know, and you're still seeing the power back there in, in Chris, you know, in, uh, in Henry. And then you see around the league, it's these backs who are getting you 13, 1400 yards a season, Christian McCaffrey, right. close to 2000 yards in a season, mm-hmm. those types of guys. And Alvin's best season is going to get you around 900, maybe a thousand. Mm-hmm. And he's still going to split time this year. if Things go the way the saints want them to. So it's, it, I think it's just that historically he's going to be for people who didn't watch him when we get to like 10, 15 years past his career, they're going to look at the touchdown numbers. They're going to look at the yardage and then they're going to be like, what really was this guy? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think he's going to be somebody that's going to have to be, you know, built in terms of the framework of an all purpose player. Right. He's not going to be able to be credited just as a running back. Right. And I think it's really interesting. Uh, the the Indianapolis Colts uh, coaching staff told Naeem Himes um, that he is not a running back that catches passes out of the backfield. He is a pass catcher that can also run the ball. And you wonder how accurate that is for Alvin Kamara, too, because he's going to give you 15, 16, 1700 all purpose yards. 1,800 all-purpose yards, nearly 2,000 all-purpose yards. But he's not going to give you 13, 1,200 rushing yards, very likely. And so some of that has to do with the with the rotation. Some of that just has to do simply with the play style and what he's asked to do in that New Orleans Saints offense. And so you're going to have to just be willing to look at him through a different lens. And like you mentioned, it's going to be easier for those of us that watched him play and understand the electricity of what he did and what he created out on the field and, you know, some of the it, just ridiculous plays that he's put together over the course of his career. And we'll continue to put together here moving forward, but it's going to be interesting looking at him. Like you, when he's listed in, and you look at sort of like his stat line, you're going to kind of have to find a way to promote his stat line. Not as here are the rushing yards and rushing touchdowns. It's going to have to be here are the rushing and receiving yards, rushing and receiving touchdowns. You're going to have to see total production over the course of his career in order to have a real understanding of, uh, of, of, of where he sits historically as probably the best all purpose back that we're seeing in the modern day era. Yeah. I think the only one that you would compare to him, you know, I think he's the evolution. Well, I would say he's kind of like the hybrid. He's the middle child. If you had Marshall Falk on one side mm-hmm. and you had Roger Craig on the other. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you split the difference. Yeah. Then I think you would end up with Alvin Kamara. You know what I mean? Because I think as a receiver coming out of the backfield, Marshall Falk is the greatest route runner as a receiver I ever saw. You know, and, and Dick Vermeil used to say, we could line up Marshall only at wide receiver and we'd be fine, mm-hmm. you know, because he's such a good route runner. Um, and I think with Roger Craig, it was he was the prototype for that, you know, of giving a guy you didn't they didn't overload Roger with carries. They always had a second back in San Francisco, yep. whether it was Ricky yep. Waters, whether it was Wendell Tyler, whether it was, you know, giving it to Tom Rathman enough times over the course of a game who also got utilized in the passing game. But Craig was the guy who mixed everything up for them. When you needed a carry, you gave it to Craig. When you needed seven yards on on third and six, you gave it to Roger Craig out of the backfield. Mm -hmm. And so I see a lot of that with Alvin Kamara. And I think also that's why a guy like Roger Craig is not in the Hall of Fame is because people do not appreciate his numbers in context and see how versatile he really was because he didn't rack up 10,000 rushing yards. And you take a guy who I love Frank Gore and I love – uh, Curtis Martin. Mm-hmm. But to me, I would rather watch Alvin Kamara. I would rather watch Roger Craig than I would have rather wa- than I would watch Frank Gore or Curtis Martin. Yeah. You know, that's, that's just me, but I think Alvin Kamara, it's just interesting. And then you look at the saints. They also had three other players get ranked in the top 10 at their positions. Demario Davis at six. Mm-hmm. And it's always weird when we're trying to place Demario because you, 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 you tweeted about this recently. Like, do you realizing how deep he is in his career, how active he still is in his ability to go sideline to sideline, the speed that he still runs with, the intensity that he plays with, and the fact that he is the leader of this team defensively. Sixth, it feels like in the context, yeah, it makes sense. But at the same time, you still feel like he's underappreciated. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think you're just always going to feel like Demario Davis is underappreciated at this point because it's all too late is the thing. Like he's been great throughout his entire career. It's just that his role has been different, right? Like that's the thing that is, I think is so in, in one of the, 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 you know, anonymous scouts or whatever that, that voted on that, uh, that voted on that poll that got him to number six talked about Demario Davis's ability to change, adapt, and evolve with the NFL game while the linebacker role has hit the field less and less and less over the past few years. It's huge. I mean, he has he has turned himself from being, you know, a downhill thumper type into a coverage guy, into a sideline to sideline player, into the quarterback of a defense. I mean, he has completely revolutionized the way that he plays the linebacker position based upon what the NFL has asked the linebacker position to turn into. And I compare it to what Drew Brees did. Drew Brees, toward the end of his career, changed the way that he played quarterback to match the NFL standard and then also changed the way that he played quarterback in order to remain impactful, even when he couldn't push the ball downfield as consistently as he could, you know, in years past. And I look at Demario Davis the same way. And yeah, I think that that number six ranking outside the top five is what I always sort of like cling on to. Like, I ah, should at least be a top five guy, but it's still recognition, but it's all too late. It's all, it's all far too late. Like he's been doing this for a very long time and no, no amount of awards moving forward at this point are going to make up for the fact that he was invisible to the league for uh, far too long before he showed up in New Orleans. Absolutely. Um, Cam Jordan at 10, Marshawn Lattimore too. It's not surprising that Marshawn after last year, because he got, he was, I mean, just his ratings were incredible. Right. But for Cam Jordan again, to still be in the top 10 at his age <laughs> and the way he finished last season, which I'm surprised he didn't have to take a urine test every game after down the stretch. <laughs> um, and that's not, I'm not, and this is not allegations against Cam. No, I'm just no, saying just the way the NFL works. One. Yes, exactly. You know I mean? like, the NFL, if, you, if an older guy has a good game, they're showing up with the cup. Right. <laughs> you have an anomalous game. If you're a young guy, if you all of a sudden score three touchdowns in a game, they're showing up with the cup. Right. So, uh, but for Cam, that shows a, the respect that, that other uh, general managers and front office people have for his game still. And then it also just shows how important that it, it's, it doesn't have to be all peaks. Yeah. When Cam can keep that, if he can still keep that lines pretty steady and not have the games, as many games this year, maybe where you don't notice him, but be steady. Cam is still just an extremely effective defensive lineman. Yeah, he's been remarkable um, over the course of his career. I mean, 10 straight years with at least seven and a half sacks. Every other player that's done that on the list is either currently a Hall of Famer or is a future Hall of Famer. And I think Cam Jordan himself is a future Hall of Famer too, especially if he gets that franchise, that franchise sack record. I think it helps in terms of his conversation. Uh, but, uh, you know, he also has, what, four of the last five years with double-digit sacks. So he's only he's only gotten better. And then finishing last year with 12 and a half sacks, but he didn't get his first sack until, what, week seven? Like the sixth game or something like that? Like, just absolutely insane. And then had eight and a half over the last four games of the season after he missed that uh, that Jets game. Uh, COVID, with COVID, yeah. yeah, and then he came back with the five G upgrade and was like, "I'm I'm taking everybody with me." Like he's just remarkable during you know at the end of the season, and so I think that's one of the things that you appreciate. And we've talked about this a bunch uh, about Cam and, and and I think Marcus Davenport has shown flashes is that they impact things late. 
when they matter. Not that they're late to the party, but they impact things late. They impact games on third downs. They impact games late in long drives. They impact games in the fourth quarter and they impact games late in the season. And that's something that from an edge rusher you want. And part of that is the rotation of keeping guys fresh all throughout the season and everything. And even later in games where, you know, these offensive linemen are playing 60 to 80 snaps every single game, the exact same player over and over again, but you're going up against six or seven different defensive linemen when you're going up against the New Orleans Saints playing different roles, right? Whether it be inside or outside or at different techs. And so I just think that, you know, that it, it goes to show what the scheme, what Dennis Allen's scheme does, but also goes to show the sort of uh, the, the uh, I guess, tenacity of a guy like Cam Jordan uh, to be able to do that and to be able to do it from an all around standpoint, not just as a pass rusher, but also making stops in the run game and also um, even taking away throwing lanes <laughs> in the flats in certain situations and making plays in the flats. I mean, he's 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 a remarkable player, a guy who understands himself. And again, that mm-hmm. that is so important for an athlete to know what you can and cannot do. Yep. Um, and to know when to go all out and when to give 85 percent, when which plays are the, the ones that you really need to step up on. Um, yeah, I think Cam understands that. And again, he's another guy that's been outwardly judged by his persona, um, I mm-hmm. think, by a lot of non-Saints yeah. observers, because you look at the mustache, you look at the hair, you look at his his you know locker room quips mm-hmm. and his tweets and you can judge him a certain way. But Cam, again, is one of the most observant and intelligent defensive players in the league. And he knows his stuff. And I I, I believe that that team, his presence alone makes that defense better, even when he has not played his best. Um, Lastly, I just wanted to hit on a couple of rumors on roster moves that could happen before camp. Um, Dan Sorensen, his uh, expendability now at this point. They signed when he was signed from the Kansas City Chiefs. There's not a lot of talk that the Saints may let him go um, after you know adding in Teron Matthew um, and having Marcus May. Um, do you think that Sorensen makes it through camp, or is he somebody that the Saints maybe look to shop, or do they let him go? I think that he's probably somebody that will make it through the majority of camp. Again, his his role coming in as a special teams leader, I think, is something that you want early in camp uh, because you're going to be making some changes on special teams in terms of your coverage units and and things like that. Um, so I think that he makes it through the majority of camp, but maybe he ends up being one of those, you know, you know, goes corresponding moves. Uh, whenever, you know, another player is added a different position or, or something like that. I, I, but I, I don't think he makes the roster at this point. I mean, you've got just at the safety position, Marcus made Tyron Matthew. Uh, they signed Justin Evans. You've got PJ Williams back. You've got CJ Garner Johnson, who mans the slot. Uh, and I you think count it, and, JT Gray as a yeah, He's counted. JT Gray's in that number. Bryce Thompson is up there. Could potentially be one of those special teams guys. Smoke Monday could potentially be one of those special teams guys. They like him. Uh, yeah. And so I, I have a hard time seeing Daniel Sorensen making the roster uh, over those guys. And, you know, the only thing that might make a difference is Tyron Matthews' experience with him in, in Kansas City. But I don't know if that was fully positive. And so that could work in Daniel Sorensen's favor. It could also work in Daniel Sorensen's. It also couldn't. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I think that he's somebody that you probably have around early to help with the special team changes and things like that to sort of play that Jeff Heath role. But outside of that, I don't know that he makes the roster by the end of by when it's all said and done. And then the last one would be uh, we heard a lot about uh, the Saints potentially going after Kareem Hunt. Mm-hmm. Um 
you know, there are mixed feelings about Kareem Hunt, his, his personal life and things that happened in his career. Um, a very talented back, nonetheless, very similar in some ways to what Alvin Kamara does. Um, what do you think the likelihood uh, of the Saints making a trade or, or going after a back like a Kareem Hunt uh, to, to add some more depth to this, this running back group when they are bringing back Tony Jones, when they are bringing back, you know, um, Mark Ingram again, mm-hmm. they have people that they trust. And it feels to me like in year one of the Dennis Allen era, he'd like to have more people that he trusts um, yeah. around rather than taking risks on guys who potentially could be locker room issues um, or could, you know, not necessarily enjoy the role that they'll be asked to take. Yeah. Look, I, I think player football wise, Kareem Hunt is a, is a great fit for, for the new Orleans Saints. And, and he would be asked to play a role that's similar to what he does with Nick Chubb, maybe even get more opportunity while Alvin Kamara's out. Um, assuming that Alvin Kamara's suspension comes through this season, we know that he's going to potentially face up to a six game suspension with the uh, offseason altercation during the Pro Bowl. Uh, but we kind of have to see where all that goes past the court hearing in August and all that. That's not going to resolve anytime quickly, it doesn't seem like. And so I, I think that, you know, he would be a good fit there. I, I, he has an embattled past, right, uh, with the domestic violence charges and, and, and things like that in his past. Um, the Saints, though, have shown that that may not necessarily impact their you know feel of a player if they feel like that player could help them win you saw them pursue Deshaun Watson while he still had you know all of those open civil suits against him you've you know you've seen players that are currently on the roster that have those histories and things like that and so I don't know that that factors in enough if they feel like that player is removed enough from the situation um, has sort of done uh, forgive the phrase but done their time around the situation and has been you know shown a, a good track record since that situation. I think that that would put them in a position where they would feel comfortable moving forward with that. Um, but I do think that there are other options. I mean, you know, there are guys out there like, like, you know, I mentioned Naeem Hines out of, out of Indianapolis. He could be somebody that could potentially become available. There's guys like justice Hill out of uh, Baltimore or any of those backs that are in that stable over in Baltimore right now, they could potentially become available because it's, you have an open market right now with some players that are there. You have a potential trade market that could end up, you know, uh, formulating for certain players, but then you also have the preseason roster cuts that could end up, you know, releasing or, or, or making a running back available for you uh, at this point. But I think the Saints will take their time with it. They, they should see what they have in the room with Mark Ingram and Tony Jones Jr. Dwayne Washington is back. They brought back Divine Ezekbo this, this offseason. And they also have Abram Smith, the young undrafted free agent out of Baylor, who went off for over 1,600 rushing yards last year in his final year at Baylor, who has some promise and could potentially compete with the guy like Dwayne Washington for a roster spot. And so, you know, it'd be interesting to see uh, how they feel about those guys in the room, but I think they're going to get a look at them first, probably bring in some veteran running backs throughout the, you know, over the course of, of camp, maybe bring a guy like David Johnson back, for instance, for a longer look at him as opposed to just mini camp and then see what ends up sort of, um, you know, evolving through, through all of that before they look at the other channels. Brother, we'll, we'll definitely do this again next week because we'll be getting ready for camp. You'll be, um, you know, out there but by then. Yeah. By this time next week, camp, you'll be rookies have been reported. And mm-hmm. we'll start to get uh, some some information about them. So we'll be back and we'll do it next week. Tell the folks real quick how they can keep up with you. 
Yeah, absolutely. You can catch the Locked on Saints podcast every Monday through Friday over on wherever, whatever app you get your podcast, as well as on YouTube now um, also. And then, of course, you can find all the written work over at USA Today. Uh, I'm writing over there at Saints Wire with John Sigler and Matty Hudak, of course, our very good friend here is the, the trio uh, Dome Patrol and all that. So uh, just, you know, trying to keep all the work up together over there. And you can find it all in one place if you just follow on Twitter at Ross Jackson, NOLA, N-O-L-A. Brother, I always appreciate you, and um, it's a pleasure every single time. And uh, let's do it again next week. Absolutely, man. Looking forward to it. I appreciate you, man. Glad to be back on the uh, back on the grind with you. All right. Until the next time, this has been the Don't Patrol or Hard to Paint. Y'all be good. We'll talk to you soon.